from the lowest dungeon to the highest peak, we bring you a 20-year celebration of the Lord of the Rings. We smote the ruin of Fellowship of the Ring upon the mountainside, but that was not the end. We've been sent back until our task is done. This is My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast, and we come back to you now at the turn of the tide. Not idly do the leaves of Lorien fall. They may yet be alive. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And I'm Emily, also known as J.R.R. Tweeting. Today's episode is The Three Hunters, our third episode on 2002's The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli refuse to abandon Merry and Pippin to torment and death as they track the Urukai into Rohan. But first, our spoiler warning. While the ring may have passed out of all knowledge and memory, these movies have not. We will provide recaps in every episode, but we assume you know these films well enough, and we will also be greedily delving into the source text, interviews, commentaries, and maybe even the Hobbit films. Today, we're going to start a discussion on the orcs that we will carry through these last two films. We've squared up the elves and dwarves already in our coverage, and our dives into the kingdoms of men started way back with our Weathertop and Boromir episodes, and shall continue as we dive deeper into the realms of Gondor and Rohan. The orcs, broadly, are flattened into a monolith in these films. Standard stuff, we see it for all the other races too. We do see some tensions between orc factions in this film, the whole meets back on the menu bit, and then the uprising in Kirith Ungol that Sam navigates to save Frodo in the next. Which is mostly just read as the unpleasantness of orcs, and them being generally loathsome creatures as depicted, though the extended editions do offer a bit more context. Late in Fellowship of the Ring and early in the Two Towers books, we start getting whiffs of various orc factions. There's the Isengarders, the Urukai created by and loyal to Saruman. The orcs of Moria are their own deal, sticking to their burrows in the Misty Mountains. We even meet a goblin king in the Hobbit films that Gandalf dispatches. And then there are the orcs of the East, or Mordor, loyal loyal to the Eye above all else. The orcs of Moria fade away from the main narrative around this point, though they are still supposedly haranguing the borders of Lothlorien after the Fellowship sought refuge there. And in these moments in the books, we see the Isengarders who absconded with Merry and Pippin have inter-orc conflicts with the orcs of Moria, and we see debates play out between the heads of both factions. Ugluk is the head Uruk, while Grishnok stands in for the orcs of Mordor. Ugluk has orders to return the hobbits to Saruman unspoiled and unsearched. This is why Merry and Pippin make it out of this whole ordeal with some Lemba still on them. Which Grishnok finds curious. Why alive? And what could they have that the orders are specifically not to strip search them for all the things? This strife between factions is used to set up Merry and Pippin's escape in both versions. In the books, Merry and Pip make golem noises to allude to themselves as the ring bearer, or possibly knowing where the ring is, which prompts Grishnok to carry them off privately, leading to their eventual escape. It's a bit more passive in the films, as the orcs come to blows on their own, and Merry and Pippin use the distraction to flee. Okay, I think that's a bit of context for where we are now, but I think we can go a bit deeper. Emily? Oh, all right. So this is going to be interesting because I'm actually going to uh, refrain from going too far into the uh, book context of these works in favor of talking about something that I think maybe gets a bit of a pass in these movies, but I think is actually really important. 
In our language episode, oh, so many episodes ago, I did a really brief overview of the Black Speech of Mordor. Um, it's, of course, mostly just the Black Speech because it extends far beyond Mordor in its usage and in its original creation. But the summary of it is really this. The Black Speech of Mordor was created in part by Sauron when he was working for Morgoth as a mockery of the valor and language. So basically a way to make fun of the demigods and the language that they spoke. But because Sauron was obsessed with efficiencies, he stripped out most of the things that he deemed frivolous from his language. So the Black Speech of Mordor isn't really a poetic language. There's not really a vernacular for arts and culture and entertainment in it. It is, for the most part, a language of command. And this is really, really interesting and really important for a lot of reasons. One of them is that Tolkien uses the creation of a language as a, as a way to describe and to really hone the underlying morals and beliefs of all of the major races in Middle-earth. The elves, of course, have these highly poetic languages that are also incredibly fractionalized. There's about 50 different languages for e each elf that treads it through Middle-earth. The dwarves have a deeply secretive language, and we've talked about the implications of that before. The Rohirrim have uh, the Anglo-Saxon English stand-in for their relationship to the, to the common tongue, which is a way of showing that they are kind of this older, less refined version of the average, quote-unquote, average man in uh, Middle-earth. And of course, the Gondorim have their own striations in language use it with the nobility using Sindarin, the uh, lay people, the commoners of uh, Gondor using the common tongue. And then in the south, in Dolamroth, uh, Adenaic, which was the lay language of Numenor, still having a bit of a presence. So all of that to say, language in the Legendarium has a really, really important character development element to it. Now, I'm going to put that slightly aside for a minute, and I'm going to instead talk about uh, my least favorite and most favorite topic in the world, which is the Industrial Revolution. <laughs> which is like, I'm so sorry for the whiplash on this, but uh, way back in the days of yore, uh, the 1800s, uh, which is basically yesterday for all of the Europeans who are listening to this, uh, there's this little thing in England called the Industrial Revolution. You may have heard of it. If not, I uh, envy you tremendously. Um, the Industrial Revolution kicked off in England for a wide variety of reasons. Um, I should also note here, uh, I am definitely not an economic historian, no matter how much I pretend to be one on TV. Uh, so the expl explanations I'm about to give you are probably going to be a little bit like crass and pedestrian, uh, but that's really the best I can handle. So apologies in advance. So in England, which is at 1850, which is roughly when the Industrial Revolution starts to kick off. Well, really, it's 17, 1750s, but whatever. Details, details. Uh, when the Industrial Revolution kicks off in England, England is still predominantly a feudal state, which means it's governed uh, both in terms of state organization, but also in terms of the, the sort of uh, state-sponsored economics of, of, of Britain uh, as a feudal regime. Um, it is a monarchy, of course, with the queen. Well, yeah, with the queen, Queen Victoria, or uh, King the various Georges uh, at the top, depending on when you pen the start of the Industrial Revolution. And then there is a uh, a, a wide sort of aristocracy, uh, landed gentry aristocracy that that sort of immediately undergirds the monarchy. Um, and then you have a sort of semi-feudal uh, merchant and artisan class that that builds out that sort of wider lower echelon, and then you have the sort of peasantry at the very bottom. 
Uh, and then if you ask Eric Hobsbawm, you have uh, various levels of the like sort of criminal subaltern b- below that, but they're not really who we're concerned about. Um, what's really important is that that Britain is uh, both a feudal state uh, and one of the most uh, uh, well, one of the wealthiest and most expansive empires on earth. Um, I'm sure everybody has heard before the the uh, not joke, but I guess line that the sod never sats on the British Empire, and that is of course literally true uh, for the vast majority of the uh, British Empire's existence. Uh, there was sun 24 hours a day in at least one part of Britain uh, because of how much territory the Brits stole from the rest of the world. So uh, having an empire means a whole bunch of things. Uh, One thing it means is imperial wealth. Uh, There is a massive amount of money, uh, like like literal money uh, and and capital. So so that's gold or that's the sort of like fiat currency, fake money (laughs) um, that uh, keeps uh, the economy floating uh, that passes through the city of London and the stocks of the city of London. But then there's also sort of the the more material wealth. So like goods, uh, uh, services, uh, I'm doing the Simpsons bit right now. Money can be exchanged for goods and services. Um, but all of that passes through uh, either London or the various other imperial ports in Britain, uh, and Britain being the island. So you've got Liverpool, Glasgow, uh, to a lesser extent, uh, Belfast, which is not Britain, the island, of course, but is part of the British Empire. You have, well, Dundee, where I live, actually is a, is a major sort of imperial city at the time, uh, especially for like the jute trade. Anyways, I'm going off down the the garden path there. So the empire exists and feudalism exists and these things go hand in hand and they help to stir something called the Industrial Revolution. And the Industrial Revolution is this sort of age of economic overhaul. It's the the sort of genesis of capitalism. Um, It's when things quite literally get industrialized. You have uh, like uh, like factory assembly lines are sort of innovated for the first time. Uh, And importantly, you have uh, the creation of sort of like the modern working class. Um, and and this means that there are uh, people who are not tethered for, for their employment and for their livelihood. They are not tethered to the land anymore. They are tethered to their output, their, their, what they are able to produce, uh, whether it's in a factory or in a shop or, or you know, things of that nature. Um, this is a, a sort of interesting moment in uh, world history. And I say interesting to like severely underrate what that actually means, uh, because it totally changes how people think about labor and how people think about finances and money and their relationship to like their employer, to their relationship to the state and their relationship to the world. Crucially, the Industrial Revolution would not have been possible um, in England first and foremost, but then throughout the rest of the world as it spread, thanks to England sort of kicking it off, had it not been for feudalism. Um, the Well, I, I struggle to call it the British state. I don't like calling it the British state because it's something primarily engendered first by the, the English state, secondarily by the Scottish state, and then both of them together when they were part of the British Union. Um, there were these things called the Enclosure Acts, uh, which basically forced uh, the peasantry um, into increasingly smaller tracts of land, uh, leaving wider and wider swathes for the aristocrats to use for grazing or for uh, sweet fuck all. It was a lot of like really unproductive land. Um, and the sort of money and taxes uh, and wealth and resources accumulated by this meant that British investors, uh, typically British aristocrats, were uh, freer to make riskier and riskier investments, but also freer to invest more and more uh, in in very specific things. So this would be like the creation of the steam engine. This would be like the creation of the, the factory towns, as we see in Manchester, the importation of cotton and the exportation of cotton, both into and out of Egypt or into and out of, for example, the United States during the, the Civil War. Um, 
British British investors are enabled to be riskier because feudalism uh, on a sort of small C conservative state kind of undergirds uh, everything that they are and, and sort of uh, underwrites them in, in insurance terms. So you've got that. Um, the Industrial Revolution obviously impacts the entire British Empire and certainly like the British metropole, the, the island of Britain. Um, but it is the northeast of England that becomes the epicenter in in sort of every imaginable sense of, of that term for the Industrial Revolution. Um, for people who are familiar with, like, for example, Friedrich Engels, uh, he is a factory owner in Manchester. Uh, he writes uh, several tracks on the condition of the working class in Manchester. Uh, the the sort of shipbuilding uh, in Liverpool becomes sort of a key point, a key focal point of the British Empire and the economic uh, like constraints of the British Empire. It is the North uh, that people see in their minds when they think about industrial in Britain. And as part of this sort of industrialization in Britain, there is this creation of the underclass or the working class, and along with it, a sort of set of cultural norms and expectations um, that, that go with that class. Um, and that's going in in sort of two different directions. There's the the, the working class as it exists in, in the northeast of England that is sort of creating its own expectations for itself. So, so internal sort of internal policing behaviors, like we are part of the working class in Manchester. This is how we behave. We do X, Y, and Z things. We dress in X, Y, and Z ways, and we talk in X, Y, and Z ways. But then there's also this sort of outlying force that that's acting in on uh, the, the sort of uh, Northern English working class. And that's um, particularly sort of people in the the, the cultural uh, juggernaut that is London TM, um, which is the South of England, um, thinking, oh, well, these people are living in squalor up North uh, and they are therefore uh, morally weak. Uh, they are prone to drinking. Uh, this is obviously as well tied up with like the, the fact that a lot of the, the sort of working class in, in these areas, uh, these cities were, were Irish people, Irish Catholic immigrants or migrants or people brought over uh, against their will. Um, and so you get this sort of like upper class vision of, of people in the north of England as being sort of uh, morally uh, lacking or in some cases as actively as like morally repugnant. Um, and one of these sort of signifiers, because for the most part, the British metropole is made up of white people. One of the easiest ways to tell people apart uh, in England when everybody is white is through regional accents. And this is this is something that I think is really interesting and something that I think most Americans maybe don't necessarily understand. But um, Britain has more regional accent varieties uh, than any other English speaking country and by some counts more than any other country speaking any language in the world. Um, like I joke that you can go, you know, one mile in any direction in Britain and have a totally different regional accent. And to be honest, it's not not far off from being true. So for the bulk of the uh, 19th and 20th centuries, you have these super hyper localized accents. You can tell that there's a distinct difference between Manchester and Liverpool, Liverpool and Yorkshire, where Sean Bean is from, Yorkshire, Glasgow, uh, Glasgow, London, London, Essex, uh, everywhere has its sort of own cultural signifier uh, or set of cultural signifiers that go hand in hand with the accents. Um, but it is the Northern accent uh, and that sort of mutates into a more generalized, well, it's now called the general Northern English accent. Uh, so if you've heard, uh, well, if you've heard Sean Bean speak, uh, you know what that sounds like. Uh, that tends to get associated with uh, 
moral <laughs> inferiority in a lot of ways. Um, and there are certain expectations that go hand in hand with uh, being uh, with being a person who speaks in that accent and being from the, the, the sort of north of England, and that is you tend to be considered uh, poor, uh, fast and loose. You probably have uh, issues with alcoholism or drug abuse. Uh, you're probably seen as more likely to be, well, to be Catholic uh, in some cases, especially if you've got that sort of Scouse or Liverpool accent, think the Beatles there. Um, and then you've also got these sort of like... Uh, uh, quite unsavory things like you're probably going to be like really stupid uh, because you're from the north and obviously uh, you're not from the south where you've got better better schools available so you're going to be probably like illiterate and dumb and you only think with uh, brawn instead of brains um, and this is all stuff that that sort of has its genesis in the industrial revolution and the sort of moral discourses and, and regional and national discourses that that come about as part and parcel of the industrial revolution um, if you would like to read a fictional account of this sort of very interesting divide uh, in context of uh, the Industrial Revolution, I highly recommend uh, Elizabeth Gaskell's book, North and South. It is first and foremost a romance, but it's also a very interesting social commentary um, and uh, a very good sort of like entry level uh, explanation for Americans in particular, trying to understand what the fuck is going on in Britain and why everybody seems to hate everybody who's, you know, five miles down the road from one another. So all of this is a very long-winded introduction to the question of why the fuck do the orcs speak like this in The Two Towers? Way back when, I think it was like episode eight of this podcast, um, I introduced everybody to the 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 question of romanticism uh, and anti-industrialism and and the questions of uh morality and political goodness political correctness vis-a-vis -vis, uh, industrialization and what sort of role Isengard and Saruman play uh for for sort of picking up that theme in in this story um and it's really never more clear than it is here where for one reason or another, the creative team behind uh, The Lord of the Rings has decided to pick the North English accent, Northern English accent, to be the literally lingua franca, the, the, the sort of characteristic accent of these orcs that are meant to represent the sort of moral failures of uh, industrialization, but also the sort of like half-witted uh, brawn over brains approach of the orcs vis-a-vis -vis, like the, the Mordor orcs who are not refined, I would say, but, you know, slightly better spoken, slightly more strategy oriented, less prone to like factional infighting. Um, and, it, you know, it, it's one of these things where I feel like it's not often handled in discourses about this movie, but I do think it is actually something worth bringing up because it is uh, mind boggling to me that they, that they made the call that they did here, especially given, uh, the the sort of historical context that I've laid out there and sort of some of the like uh unsavory elements of that what it what it implies about people who are from the north why you would sort of approach uh what are essentially sort of like the Nazi stand-in here by like picking on a group of people particularly in England who are typically identified as you know part of the the marginalized working class if you think of like the the you know Margaret Thatcher in the 1980s the people she went after the the sort of most aggressively um I should say after Scottish people, because uh, all my friends here in Scotland will kill me for not acknowledging that, um, is, of course, people in the north of England, uh, people in the mining communities. Um, so, so, so there's that. Um, and I also feel like I need to, like, sort of soften this kind of gripe here with, like, there's a difference between, like, effect 
or intention and effect. And like, I don't think that like, uh, you know, everybody involved in this film was like, oh, we are specifically doing this to spite, uh, you know, people from Manchester, fuck Mancunians, fuck Liverpudlians. Like we're, we're, we're going in with this because we want to make them look bad and we want to be like, they're all orcs. Um, but there is this sort of effect of like, uh, sort of supporting, bolstering this vision of what people from the North of England are like. And particularly in this sort of post or deindustrial, post-industrial landscape where the North is not treated very well generally, um, it is a very interesting creative choice to me, particularly when you couple it with that sort of lore-based issue of like the language of the orcs being this non-artistic, non-cultural language, uh, a language of command and of efficiencies. Um, And that, of course, all all, uh, relates particularly keenly to uh, Sean Bean's career um, as someone who kind of pushed forward maintaining his Yorkshire accent, but was also boxed out from a lot of the sort of cultural um, and artistic edifices of of sort of the the British like uh, cultural circuit on the basis of sounding like he does. So I'm going to take a deep breath there, but uh, this is sort of something I've been like excited to talk about because I think it is really interesting and worth talking about. And I think maybe it doesn't get as much play like with Americans as maybe, well, and certainly with Brits as maybe it should, because it is one of these sort of incidentally uglier sides of these films. (laughs) Yeah. As a filthy American, I can say I like none of that was something that's ever registered to me until our recent discussions. I know we started back in fellowship, but I also don't have a year for accents. There's either American white accent or British empire white accent (laughs) to me. Like that's, that's literally all like, I could not tell you the difference between different parts of the empire. I'm not saying that as like a good or bad thing. It's just not something I'm capable of. My only comment is I think the orc costumes are cool. But I do want to just throw in another shout out or uh, recommend if you are interested in the Industrial Revolution and also from a more socialist or leftist standpoint, um, our friends uh, or our friend Luke has a podcast called We're Not So Different with uh, Dr. Eleanor Yanega, where they're, it's mostly focused on medieval history, but they're doing this long series on historical materialism. Uh, their most recent episode just got up to World War II, but they absolutely went deep into the Industrial Revolution, the first real implementations of modern capitalism, as well as the birth of communism and our good friends Karl Marx and Engels, as you mentioned, and Hegel and all all our comrades. So <laughs> um, if you are interested in that, and I think I mentioned it before, but they also have a very similar dynamic to us in that Dr. Eleanor Yanega is overseas over in Europe, while Luke is also a filthy American. (laughs) So if you want more context, I highly recommend you check out their pod. Yeah, it's good. It's I'm, I'm kind of excited to see like there's this kind of, um, not recent, but over the past, like maybe 10 years, kind of resurgence of interest in talking about like the sort of cultural implications of the uh, Industrial Revolution. Um, and like one of the scholars I love, uh, who's writing I really like, is uh, is Tom Nairn. Uh, and Tom Nairn, among other things, uh, loves to talk shit about the British state and like its relationship to feudalism and um, particularly its relationship to feudalism in light of sort of the Industrial Revolution and this myth that like capitalism totally usurped and replaced feudalism and how in Britain that is just like patently bullshit um, and I think like he doesn't say this but I'm going to extend his argument to say this but I think like the like um, using regional accents as sort of cultural signifiers in the way that Brits do um, is sort of this overhang from feudalism um, and like it's no surprise that like 
you know, not just you, but like most Americans don't necessarily have an ear for accents because accents don't have that same degree of political import in the U.S. that they do elsewhere. Like now, I also remember like George W. Bush, like putting on a fucking Texas accent, even though he's from Connecticut and went to Yale. Like so there is there is sort of a, a, a rule that um, accents play in like, you know, I, I'm from Virginia, so I'm like you know, part of the South. Uh, and like, I know the sort of softening of Southern accent that, that goes uh, along with like a lot of, you know, it, you know, t- teenagers, youths, young people, whatever, trying to get jobs like in, in the rest of the United States. But like the degree to which like uh, British accents are politicized and are like actively used as sort of like a vector of marginalization uh, is, is really, really intense and not at all intense <laughs> in the United States. And so it's really interesting to see like because obviously the production team behind this is is all kiwis they're all from new zealand uh you know british empire-esque um but not in the same way and it's interesting to see their kind of entry into that wider canon of like brits saying brits here being like a spiritual thing rather than like a passport Um, like brits saying insane shit about people's uh like heritage or like their backgrounds based on the way they talk yeah no that's that's all fascinating and I, I'm going to plug my other podcast here in a bit, but uh, the I love Metal Gear Solid Five. It's the most recent and last Metal Gear Solid game that came out in 2015, and it is almost entirely about the language of imperialism and more so the imperialism of language and how language can be something that unites people, but is also a way to impose, you know, imperial values or values from the imperial core on other peoples and what the loss of language can do or how it can wreak havoc in communities and countries and cultures. Um, It's a really fascinating thing that I had never actually ever thought about before that game. Um, So I like that we're bringing it in here too, because basically, you know, it's it's another political tool or um, another way that empires are able to have themselves, you know, there's a word I'm looking for here that I'm failing to grasp, but how empire uses language is so crucial to how they maintain their power. It's like the vanguard of empire is almost the language of empire. So uh, I really like that we're looping that in here, but I just wish I had something more thoughtful to say about it. <laughs> it's it's kind of weird for it to like come in. So, okay. So, so like in the wider legendarium, uh, because Tolkien himself is so interested in languages, like a lot of the, the questions around like imperialism and language and, and sort of merging or, uh, or like demerging of languages actually comes in the context of the elves because <laughs> the elves are, uh, you know, constantly splitting and fighting and creating their own languages. And like when the Noldor come back over from, uh, bu- uh sorry, from Amman to Beleriand, like, uh, Alu Thingol, who's, Melian's dad, dad, whatever, sorry, I'm going to get into elf genealogy and it helps absolutely no one here. Eluthingal bans uh, Quenya uh, and is like, absolutely not. We're not letting those imperialists speak their languages. They're going to come fuck our stuff up. If they're going to come fuck our stuff up, they're going to do it slower because they're going to speak our language, which is Sindarin, uh, which is how Sindarin becomes the sort of lingua franca of, of uh, the elves and sort of specific type of men, the Edain of, of Middle Earth. Um, so a lot of those conversations tend to happen in the Silmarillion under the, the guise, sort of the context of the elves but in lord of the rings it actually happens with the orcs of all people um and you know there there is that sort of link in that the orcs are the the corrupted elves um but i i do like that there's this sort of more like you get into the the late third age um and the world is really changing and like the the questions of imperialism is less like the the sort of 
uh, inner knee sign spats over like poetic flourishes in languages and more the like question of like what is language for at its base like what is like is language meant to issue commands to people like do we use our languages to tell other people to go do things for us or do we use our languages to uh you know express emotions or to express the or attempt to express like the inexpressible um and that's all on show in in the lord of the rings and weirdly through the yorks (laughs) this an orc pack moving in broad daylight <laughs> no this is no mere orc pack this is the fighting urukai hightailing it through the plains of rohan it's a blur a dark cloud passing like the wind grays and browns coloring their armor their weapons their flesh but just barely some green pokes through it's merry and pippin we find our captured hobbits being carried on uruk backs merry sporting a nasty gash on his brow is unconscious Pippin seems to have his wits about him, though. If I were Gandalf, I might make a jape about how many wits Pippin ever had, but I'm far <laughs> less of a dick to our Scottish hobbit. <laughs> the Uru column comes to an abrupt halt. A scout has picked up a scent. Manflesh, which is one of Aragorn's 75 names in the books. The Uruks pick up their pace and continue the march back to Isengard. Pippin, showing he's less foolish than we think, bites off the brooch from his elven cloak and spits it to the ground where it goes unnoticed by the Uruks trampling over it. But it surely will not be unnoticed by... Their pace has quickened. They must have caught our scent. Hurry! Come on, Ghibli! Three days of light's pursuit. No food, no rest, no sign of our quarry, but what fair rock can tell. Oh baby, we are back. <laughs> That fellowship theme rings for the first time here in all its glory. The meme of the company of nine now bore by three hunters, a dwarf, an elf, and a man. Aragorn leads the charge as we get more of those great landscape travelogue shots as they close in on their prize. As expected, the ranger locates Pippin's abandoned clip, confirming not only the right trail, but that the hobbits may yet live. Less than a day behind, they surmise, as they arrive at Rohan, home of the horse girls. Sorry, <laughs> that's for my friend Cole, who tweeted that joke years ago. But yeah, here's the first time we hear Rohan, and you'd be a fool to think we aren't going to play this musical arrangement every time we can. <laughs> There's something strange at work here. 
Some evil gives speed to these creatures. Sets its will against us. Legolas! What do your elf eyes see? The Uruks turn northeast! They're taking the hobbits to Isengard! Sorry, no taking the hobbits to Isengard remixes today. At least not yet. Who knows what Emily has up her sleeve. <laughs> but Isengard means Saruman, and we segue over to his Tower of Orthanc as we establish, or re-establish, the antagonist of this plotline. And as we noted early during our fellowship coverage, it's extremely smart and good to give exposition to Christopher Lee. Make sure to point at your listening device when he says the name of the movie. world is changing. Who now has the strength to stand against the armies of Isengard and Mordor? To stand against the might of Sauron and Saruman and the union of the two towers. Isengard continues its descent into industry and orc labor exploitation as the fires burn hotter and longer, thanks to all the trees from the nearby forest of Fangorn. That surely doesn't bode poorly for Saruman, but he's a little too preoccupied with waxing poetic about war machines and the iron fist of the orc to care for the woods anymore. But this isn't some abstract mobilization. He's prepping for all-out war on Rohan, and it won't just be orcs in his rank and file. Dunlanders, a ragged group of hillsfolk, have been weaponized by Saruman to attack the Westfold. The horsemen are to blame for their squalor, so you know, why not pay them back with violence? Sounds great, wizard man. And so it begins in the Rohan. A village along the Westfold now comes into view as a band of Dunlanders and orcs raise it to the ground. A mother sends her young son Eothane and daughter Frida to Edoras to raise the alarm on horseback. The kids can only look back at their burning homes with tear-soaked eyes. Rohan, my lord, is ready to fall. Oh, fuck yeah. Given today's discussion, the Urukai Brigade seems like a good place to start. While orc culture doesn't get a lot of focus in these films, what little we see starts taking root here. Thinking back to 20 years ago, I think I was a little shocked at the orcs talking freely in this movie. There were three orc lines in total in Fellowship of the Ring that I count. What orders from the eye, the trees are strong, and find the halfling. 
but it was so minimal and so command or directive oriented that it never felt like dialogue in a way we think of two characters talking, which tracks with what Emily has told us about black speech or orc talk being focused on commands and orders, as opposed to poetry and music. And also, Moria, which of the scenes from Fellowship of the Ring occupied most of my seven brain cells, the orcs there had no dialogue whatsoever. So I was a little surprised when they were having full-fledged conversations in this scene. In Fellowship of the Ring's ending, Lawrence yells a little bit, but as noted, it's mostly communication via grunts and growls. Right. So this is like a really interesting problem for uh, not just the movies, but the books. Um, And I... I'm filled with like disdain for myself and regret and sorrow right now for what I'm about to say. But I have to give it to George R. R. Martin here because he raises the question, the very important question of, does Aragorn pursue a denazification program of the orcs? And the reason he raises this question is unfortunately because he is right to point out that the orcs, for the fact that they are having conversations like this, both in the films and in the books, are sentient. Um, And they are sentient and they are intelligent and they are capable of some form of potentially rational thought. They appear to have sort of individual uh, senses of self. Uh, They they appear to have sort of an ability to discern what is and isn't right and wrong. And they have first or or most importantly, they have free will. Because we know all of those things. The fact that our uh, merry band of heroes, uh, you know, kills them in the way that they do, basically plowing them down, uh, becomes a slightly more morally gray issue. Um, It also becomes a massive fuck off issue once uh, the good guys win at the end of Return of the King and uh, and Sauron, rather, not Saruman, well, Sauron too, but Sauron uh, is uh, dead and no longer there to issue... Uh, this sort of general evil command to all of the orcs. Uh, The question then becomes, what do you do with these semi-sentient beings, these beings with free will? Um, In the appendices of Lord of the Rings, uh, Tolkien makes it very clear that uh, Aragorn just goes out and... I'm trying to be very careful with my language here, uh, kills them all. Uh, there is there is a sort of like zero tolerance policy for the orcs. Um, but what George R. R. Martin brings up, which is, I think, unfortunately very correct, is, is that morally and ethically okay? Should he not pursue, because we know that they have free will, some sort of program to uh, deprogram, de-radicalize them, and then allow them to live on in a non-evil fashion? Um, And obviously that's not really something we can cover like hugely here uh, or, you know, really in any of the the scope of these movies. But it is interesting that like uh, these conversations end up having like funny as they are uh, and interesting as they are end up having these like really profound and fucked up implicate like moral implications for the wider story. Um, And uh, (laughs) and it's like one of these kind of unanswered questions in in sort of like uh, Tolkien scholarship, uh, Tolkien fandom generally is like what the hell do you do with these sentient free will having orcs no i think it's great i i think i just adopt a little bit of my marvel comics or even star wars brain a little bit in that like the jobbers that the heroes are killing like their humanity matters when it matters to the story <laughs> yeah. um, as opposed to when it not and just for the sake of opposite day feelings i will defend the lord of the rings a little bit from george martin <laughs> um and mostly just say i i 
what I I don't think George is saying, oh, the Lord of the Rings is bad, or this is like a huge failing of Tolkien's work. Um, I think that's just one of the things he kind of seized on that when he wanted to spin out his own fantasy epic, that was something he specifically wanted to at least work into his own story just to kind of explore that because it felt like one of the unanswered or what answers were there were not super satisfying yeah. from either a moral or a narrative standpoint. So um, it, it's... It's it's hard, you know. It's just really hard. It's like how um, the Solo, a Star Wars story, introduced robot sentience and Ugh. robot rights into the question, and it kind of just fucks everything in Star Wars to yeah. some degree. Yeah. Um, and then that's why I kind of have this compartmentalization, which I'm not saying is either a good or academically well disciplined approach to it. Um, and sometimes it just this is what the story is about, and you sometimes just have to. Or each person has to decide whether, you know, what to do with the time they're given. No, sorry. <laughs> um, they have to, you know, decide wh where they're going to draw the line. And it could vary story by story. But I do think it's worth talking about because I think the more interesting moral implications and discussions um, arise from those kind of questions. And I'm glad that people are asking it, asking it, even if it may, you know, make some parts of the story seem a little icky or kind of fall apart um, from how we previously conceived or how maybe a simpler reading would conceive of it. Yeah, well, I like it because it makes Aragorn look like even more of a rat bastard. So I get to be like, well, actually, Aragorn sucks <laughs> even more than you previously thought. <laughs> uh, what's the elvish word for genocide king? <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll let you get to the next episode for that answer. <laughs> Anyway, these language scenes pave way for laters, later scenes discussing what non-vegetarian options may be at orc restaurants or, you know, say the discussions between the various uh, mortar orc factions we start seeing in Return of the King. Coming back to the story itself, the orcs stop abruptly because one of the orcs, named Mwahar in the script, smells Aragorn on their tail, which unfortunately is not a co comment on how stinky Aragorn is, Dude definitely needs a bath at this point, but rather just about the general scent that men in this world have. <laughs> um, so given that this was filmed in the late 1990s, I have just always assumed that Aragorn like bathed in Axe body spray and just reeked of like a uh, American public school, middle school. Oh, man. Uh, I, I did not see this joke earlier, but I have to go back and come up with like what the flavors or the different smell types the odor types of axar <laughs> that would make sense for middle earth um, oh god and then you can make a gimli meme and say and my axe oh no like, you know <laughs> you, do you want to smell like casa doom <laughs> um but anyways <laughs> i wanted to flag all that um because as noted in fellowship of the ring these movies are as much as invested in engaging your olfactory glands and smell systems galadriel's prologue smelled evil in the air Gandalf's nose led the fellowship to the Dwarodalf, and smell was even used to portend Gollum's arrival in the scenes in Emin Muil. Hopping over to our hobbits, Pippin, rather sharply, surmises that the man sent detected was Aragorn, or at least he hoped it would be so. Uh, not sure if this belongs in the Token Token book section, but Pippin was much less sure if they were being followed or if rescue was on the way. Rather cannily, since Merry is KO'd for this entire scene, Pippin drops the elvish brooch from his elvish cloak to give the hunters affirmation that they went this way and that they are in fact alive. It's the tiniest of acts, offering the smallest bit of hope. I don't know why, but my mind draw draws a connection to Pippin dropping a leaf here at the start and being the one to start an entire tree uprising by the end. 
As Gandalf says, the hobbits are like the first small stones that preview an avalanche. So I have a, a friend who um, the other day was talking about the kind of three main ways to, to like interface with Tolkien's works. And, and the three ways that they were sort of proposing are like um, treating it as a history, treating it as literature and treating it as folklore. Um, and so, you know, I, I tend to subscribe to the sort of history and literature kind of lenses on this. But this is actually really interesting uh, sort of. Uh, uh, like folklore uh, element, a folklore sort of supporting element of of the story here, because dropping that kind of token as a way to be found is, is something that has a long history in in certainly like northwestern European uh, folklore traditions. So I'm thinking of like Hansel and Gretel in particular. Um, I definitely could Google more if I had thought ahead on that, but instead I'm going to go with what pops into my head. So it's like definitely Hansel and Gretel. Um, and I think that that's kind of interesting to me because it represents this more like childlike approach to problem solving that I think fits quite neatly with Pippin's character. Um, like in my head, this is sort of the kind of solution you'd come up with if you'd grown up hearing stories like Hansel and Gretel and we're suddenly faced with a situation and the solution that comes to mind is not something that you've done before out of experience, but something that you've heard of in a fairy tale. So you drop something because you know that's how people in, in stories like the one you are now uh, rather surprisingly living in or living through uh, tend to survive these things. Um, and I and I like that sort of like fairy tale childlike uh, thinking that, that Pippin's putting on show here. Oh, I love that. And as mentioned, Mary is out cold for this entire scene and bears a rather nasty-looking cut over his brow. I like how the very first thing Pippin does in this movie is check on his friend, even if Mary is unable to answer. There's a little bit more in the extended edition, but again, Patreon, 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 patreon.com slash bomb. Do it. Let's talk the three hunters. This is our reacquaintance of what remains of the Fellowship. Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli. There isn't a ton of character work done in this scene per se, but it is probably good just to go over all three in turn. Though the highlight, of course, is the landscape shots of the three sprinting to catch up with the Urukalam. To me, these shots have just a bit more kinetic energy, more camera speed than the shots after the Fellowship departed Rivendell. This speaks to the speed of the three hunters and their hasty pursuit. They are traveling light after all. I think what I need going forward is like the sound of like a wolf howling just to like express the emotions that I feel whenever I see one of these absolutely badass shots. Like this shot here, seeing the beautiful landscape stuff just like triggers something like primal inside me. Like I like devolve evolutionarily until I'm like the like, I don't know, like the the like sort of pre-human I don't know, creature living in a cave, banging on the walls, being like, yes, this fucking bangs. Because that's really all I'm capable of doing when this scene happens. It just looks awesome. It's uh, it's like that drill tweet. Lord of the Rings is back. It's good again. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> so we'll start with Aragorn, Emily's favorite, as he's the first to get focus, <laughs> ear to the ground, listening to the Uruk pace quicken. He has taken the lead, both in terms of his companions, but also in terms of the narrative. When they were a fully formed fellowship, you kind of had three main characters, Frodo, Gandalf, and Aragorn. But with the former two not part of the company, Aragorn becomes the anchor of this plot thread all the way to and through the battle at the Black Gate. 
In that, Aragorn now seems more confident and less burdened than in Fellowship of the Ring. A lot of reasons could explain this. He is no longer in the presence of the Ring or the Ring Bearer. Any bad vibes the Ring was giving off are beyond his reach now. That, the burden of the quest, and how to get to Mordor, those worries have been liberated from Aragorn. Hunting orcs, though? Saving his friends? Tracking them across the open plains? That is where Aragorn is king. No pun intended. That's where he makes his bread and butter. Reminds me a bit of Captain America the Winter Soldier, which I'm only bringing up right now because I'm doing a special Patreon episode about it uh, for you guys for helping support my Patreon. And because it is in my mind still the best MCU film and the one worth salvaging from that whole wreck. Steve Rogers, now in the 21st century after 70 years in an ice spa under the Arctic, is having trouble navigating the murky neoliberal world of 2014. But when he figures out the bad guys are the Nazi-run U.S. security state, well, things get easier for him. He knows what to do with Nazis, punch them, and burn down all their things. Oh, and Aragorn's tracking skills, I am all about. It intersects perfectly with my other interests, namely Bear Grylls' Man vs. Wild and Big Boss from Metal Gear Solid 3. It helped plays up the ranger part of his personality, but I think I'll save the Big Boss sound clips for when he's sussing out what happened at the Uruk pile. So I really like this bit because I think um, as we talked about in some of the Lothlorien episodes um, and as you raised really well, like um, the, the sort of magic of the elves is tied to like nature. Um, and here you see this sort of more utilitarian take on that, like natural, practical magic that the elves have. Um, and you know, Aragorn does some slightly wacky shit that I don't think like is particularly like, uh, like logical. Um, if I were to briefly, uh, like slip into my YouTuber, uh, persona there. Um, but it does kind of work really neatly as part of this tradition of like, the elves are super, super, super in tune with the the world around them, and that enables them to do things that seem like supernatural. Um, and Aragorn, either through his relationship, like his weird genetic relationship to the elves, or through having been like raised and 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 fostered by the elves, also has that sort of con- like deeper connection to the earth but instead of using it to do like weird uh mind fucky stuff like gladriel does um he's using it to do something that's altogether more practical and utilitarian no i love that because uh going back to my initial readings of this scene uh having seen the films and not uh reading the books or having seen the extended editions uh, i believe in the theatrical cuts there's almost no mention of aragorn's elvish side uh I mean, there might be like oblique references through some of his dialogue with Arwen, Mm. but the whole thing about his age being, you know, much longer than a normal human, that's all extended edition stuff with uh, AON. Um, And so like, to me, like this was more like a ranger thing. And this also helps because the movies don't go into the Dunedain or the Great Company or like what their heritage is. So... Like, to me, this was just like, oh, his job class is Ranger, and this is the skill that his job class has. And it's kind of been wild, like, over the last 20 years as I've read the books, watched the extended editions, and just learned more, that it's probably not that. But that was how it made sense to me in the theaters in 2002. Yeah, and I mean, it does make sense, because, like, in D&D, the Ranger class has this ability uh, to, like, you know, like, be particularly aware of and spend a lot of time, like, studying, uh, like, a specific 
specific kind of creature. And so people who play the ranger class are kind of always able to be aware of when uh, that creature is nearby or like it's specifically strengths and weaknesses and stuff. And, and that I think is the very logical and reasonable interpretation of what's going on with Aragorn stuff here instead of like uh, J.R.R. Tolkien's weird, spooky nature magic. <laughs> And nothing specific, but I don't know. I always like the line, not idly do the leaves of Lorien fall. Poetic tells us about Alvin Crafts and shows us Aragorn reading the tea leaves correctly. Just kind of like that, how all those things kind of dovetail in that one single line. So on to Legolas. We've said it plenty before, but Legolas doesn't have much characterization and even less in dialogue that tells us about him or his culture. All that said... This is his movie. His dialogue in this film is absolute just sicko mode. They run as the very whips of their masters are behind them. A red sun rises. Blood has been spilled this night. And Emily wanted me to drop in the first t- or a little bit from the Rankin Bass movie, so I'm going to drop that in right here. Also, I'll save you for now, but just know I'm going to go ham when we talk about the Legolas action later in this movie. But this is also where we get our explicit acknowledgement about elf eyes. In episode 20, A Shadow and a Threat, I talked about how I was initially unsure what Legolas was seeing in the woods when they were going down the Great River, but this line cleared it up for me, and Emily also in that episode provides an explanation for why the elves can see so far. (laughs) And finally, our dwarf end of the three hunters... Gimli, son of Gloin. Gimli is now realized as the comic relief of this plot thread. We'll weigh the individual jokes as we go, but as I professed before, I think most of it in the Two Towers work. It often adds world building or plot utility, which I admit is a dull way to think about visual art, but it's well considered enough for me. The Natural Sprinter's line is one of his retorts here, which tells us a bit about Dwarves' physical abilities. Him falling into frame like Buster Keaton? Eh, maybe less great. But I mean, I probably laughed the first time I saw it, and when I saw it at the local indie theater last summer, the theater had a good laugh at it, and I smiled along too. I'm not saying any of this to come off as defensive, but I don't want these moments to be lost, as sometimes we get super humorless and narrow in our analysis, and these moments can just be fun. As Shiv Roy would say, it plays. (laughs) <laughs> I'm so furious you got the first Shiv Roy reference in on this podcast because she is like my my portrait of Dorian Gray. Don't ask which one of us is the portrait. Uh, the, uh, when I dropped Nietzsche, you had to like immediately come back the next episode with <laughs> Robespierre. So I want to see what your answer to my Shiv Roy <laughs> mention is going to be. Tom Williams Gibbs, your time to shine is now. <laughs> uh, King Spinach. That's, that's all I think about when I think of Tom. <laughs> While there will be jokes to discuss, Gimli also gets to pitch in on the exposition too. He catches the audience up on the pursuit between films, and will later describe the Urukai at Helm's Deep. Both the humor and the exposition work well coming from the most quote-unquote grounded character of sorts. Might be weird coming out of Legolas's mouth. Well, everything comes out of Legolas's <laughs> mouth is weird. And as an errant observation... Reese Davies rolling his R's is what makes Gimli's voice sound so good to me. 
Oh boy. Hello. I'm back for some accent chat. Uh, yeah, so that rolled R sound is actually like a really intrinsic part of most Scottish regional dialects. Um, and I'm, I'm pretty sure is actually a key part of pronunciation in the Scots language itself. Um, what's actually interesting about that, that sort of rolled R sound, um, is that it's becoming increasingly lost among like young, uh, Scottish people due to like kind of in part to the like increasing Americanization of most uh, regional accents. Um, so now you will like hear young Scottish people kind of delay that, that rolled R sound and it just tends to come out as like a standard rhotic R um, or they'll swallow their R's entirely, which is uh, an interesting sound. Um, so there are some researchers at Glasgow Uni and uh, Queen Margaret's in Edinburgh uh, who did a really interesting brief survey of uh, young Scottish people and uh, the, sort of the relationship to the rhotic R uh, is online uh, available for free uh, if anyone wants to look into it and it's, it's kind of well worth the read and like a, a sort of interesting like cultural micro history so because you guys need to know every personal detail of my life i actually was unable to roll my r's uh and i still really struggle with it because um, i was born with an extra tooth growing out of the roof of my mouth um which prevented my tongue from doing that rolling sound and i actually had real trouble just saying R or words with R in it. It came out more like a W sound uh, when I said it. Um, I had to go to speech uh, coaching classes when I was really young. So people who can roll their R's, uh, very jealous of them, uh, <laughs> especially uh, with the double R in the Spanish language was something I could never oh pull God. off for any of my Spanish spoken exams. No, literally, I can't do it either. And I don't even have a good excuse. Like I grow, grew up in like Francophone countries where they, they also roll their R's and I've never been able to do it. And I'm just like riddled with embarrassment every time I try and speak French because I'm like oh god they're gonna know I'm a yank the minute I get to uh, like a word with the R fuck <laughs> uh, upon arrival at the plains of Rohan which we'll come back to Legolas confirms that Uruk's turn northeast to Isengard to which Aragorn for the sake of the audience grimly says Saruman whose name has yet to be specifically uttered my first instinct was to say, yeah, they have Aragorn say it because it would be silly for Saruman himself to say his name in his own dialogue. But nope, I'm wrong. <laughs> he literally says in his opening monologue, who dare oppose Sauron and Saruman? But I guess it could be unclear who he meant if, for some reason, you were watching this without having seen Fellowship of the Ring. <laughs> but yes, now we cut over to Isengard. Remember how green and vibrant it was when we first saw it in Fellowship? That's all gone. The literal life has been sucked out of frame. What's left is this murk of blue and gray, not too different in coloring than the sickly golem. Um, I'm cutting in here as the voice of the joyless nerds uh, because someone will inevitably make fun of me online if I don't point this out. Um, Legolas says they turn, turn northeastward toward Isengard uh, on the map. Definitely not possible. Uh, Parth Galen, where they're heading from, and Anduin is always uh, northeast of Isengard, so they would have had to turn southwest. I truly do not give a fuck about this change. I truly do not care. But it's one of these things where every goddamn time this scene gets brought up, uh, some humorless fuck will be like, well, actually. Uh, so I felt uh, it was my duty, my obligation uh, to represent those absolute freaks uh, and mention that here. So, job done. Okay, I'm just going to go with the headcanon that the orc or the Urukai were stupid and kind of missed their exit and had to circle back. <laughs> <laughs> they end up in the showers like, ooh, think we went too far. <laughs> 
Saruman, hovering over his palantir, basically goes into villain narration to no one in particular. It's very stagey, which I actually like. Plus, I don't know, it feels right for Christopher Lee Saruman to sit high in his tower and just orate. Oh, and the Palantir inclusion is specific. It doesn't show up again in this film, I don't think, but will be a relevant plot point for Return of the King, so we don't want to forget that Saruman has it. Well, it's also not just there to remind us it exists, it's the way Saruman communicates with Sauron, and through the looking glass we zoom in to actually get a glimpse of Mordor. We only got glimpses of the Shadowlands and Barad-du and Fellowship of the Ring, often in the Twilight Realm or from angles that didn't show too much. But now, as Frodo and Sam near the location over in their plot thread, Mordor needs to be more tangible, inhabit a physical space with a clear geography, or clear enough for film purposes. Our ring-bearing trio is going to have to skirt around Mordor this film and penetrate it the next, so it's good to get some establishing shots here. We also start to see the breadth of Sauron's army. The way Fellowship of the Ring shook out, the only direct servants of Sauron we saw were the Nazgul. The orcs and Uruks the Fellowship contended otherwise were of Moria or Isengard variety, not of Mordor as we discussed up top. But now as we see numbers beyond compare pouring out of Barad-dûr, and as Frodo and Sam inch closer, we will see more and more of Sauron's forces that have been held back so far. So not like a super clever intellectual point here. Uh, I was just watching the prequels, the Star Wars prequels, uh, the past couple days. Um, and two movies came out in this year. One is The Two Towers and the other is Attack of the Clones. Both of them prominently feature Christopher Lee. Both of them also prominently feature people looking out over these massive armies uh, of, uh, well, what are ostensibly bad guys. Because at least in, in Attack of the Clones, we are most familiar with the the stormtroopers as bad. Um Deeply funny to me, though, that only one of them gets it right that having uh, what is effectively a stormtrooper army is uh, definitely a bad thing and not something you want to put the good guys at the head of. But, you know, there it is. Oh, God, now I want to see Yoda fight Legolas and what that would look like in 2002 (laughs) CGI action. (laughs) I mean, it would be terrible, but I want to see it. Yeah, no, make it a Phantom Menace puppet Yoda versus fully CG (laughs) Legolas. (laughs) Oh, man. But Mordor is over there, and Saruman has more pressing interests over here. The mobilization of Isengard has continued unabated as Chris Lee waxes on about the old world burning in the fires of industry and the rise of the orc. And those fires are being fueled by the trees surrounding Isengard, the trees of Fangorn Forest. This is all setting up the Ents marching on Isengard, of course. The cut-down trees become a devastating sight that motivates Treebeard to war and in a larger sense, represents the struggle of nature versus industry and technology. Isengard's war machine is being directed at Rohan, of course, which we will lay out over the course of the next several episodes. Here, we see Saruman inciting the Dunlanders, or Dunlandings, against Rohan. These men, or their ancestors, once lived in the plains of Dunland. We saw the Fellowship in its inaugural steps walking through the lands of Dunland. Ha <laughs> um, So at the top of this episode, uh, we were like, this is going to be one of our shorter ones for Shorezies. And now I'm going to take uh, any chance this had of being one of the shorter episodes out back and treat it like it's a sick horse. Um, so the Dunlandings, uh, they are interesting. Um, <laughs> they're interesting for a lot of reasons. Um, in, hmm, 
I think in the Boromir episode, I, yes, it had to have been the Boromir episode. Um, I talked about the like moral hierarchy of the various groups of men in Middle Earth. Um, and that hierarchy is the high men, um, which is traditionally the, the, well, not traditionally, which is the men of Numenor and the descendants of the men of Numenor, the middle men, which is the groups of people that broadly stayed neutral in the sort of, uh, skirmishes against various skirmishes against Sauron. And then the men of darkness, men of shadow, uh, who are the men who sided with, uh, uh, Sauron, uh, uh, sort of in the Beleriandic and, and early uh, Middle Earth wars. Uh, the Dunlendings are these men of shadow. Uh, they are not the only men of shadow, but they are the first group of them that we've met so far. Um, a brief sort of bit of like geopolitical history, I guess. Uh, the the plains of Rohan, which is uh, Kelinarthon, uh, which was previously a province of Gondor, uh, was depopulated during a plague in like the year sixteen hundred. I think it's like sixteen thirty six of the Third Age. Uh, plague sweeps Gondor. Uh, uh, Arthuron is uh, depopulated. People move back sort of into the 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 sort of uh, eastern parts of Gondor to be sort of closer to like the the imperial core of the metropole. Um, and uh, at the same time, uh, the uh, kingdom of Gondor, as ruled over by the stewards, uh, faces a whole bunch of like territorial incursions, primarily from the south. Uh, through the the Hard Dream and the Corsairs of Umbar, uh, there's a, a sort of long war uh, against the Hard Dream that isn't going especially well. Uh, and the steward Carrion uh, sends out basically a notice to all of the the sort of middlemanish uh, middlemanish tribes of uh, the uh, of Middle Earth, um, and gets word back from uh one the the sort of chieftain of one particular group called the Aotheod uh who ride to Gondor's aid uh at a battle in the very very far south of Athelion uh, at a river called Poros and this is the battle of the crossings of Poros uh and this is where the the oath of Aeorl uh between Aeorl who's the chieftain of the Aotheod and the steward Carrion of Gondor is uh is sort of made and set out um and in uh reward for the uh Aotheod riding to Gondor's aid uh, Stuart Kyrian grants them um, Caelan Arthron uh, as, as their land um, and that becomes uh, to the Rohirrim it becomes the, the Rittermark, the Mark uh, and to the Gondorim it becomes Rohan um, in the intervening period between the sort of depopulation of this region uh, by the, the the sort of Gondorim and the resettling of it by uh, the Aotheod, who later become the Rohirrim, the Dunlendings moved in from Dunland, which is the the sort of uh, uh, territory to the west of the. Uh, uh, Misty Mountains and the Arid Nimrace, the, the the White Mountains, um, and had sort of started to call bits and pieces of it their own. In the eyes of Gondor, which felt that it still had serenity over the territory, it was a totally illegitimate claim. Um, and then later in the eyes of the Rohirrim, who were, uh, quote unquote, rightfully transferred that claim uh, via uh, the steward Kyrian, it was also an illegitimate claim. Uh, the uh, Dunlendings, who lived there, farmed there, uh, set up their lives there, were like, what the fuck does legitimacy mean? It was like, <laughs> Terry and Nullis, uh, just give us our lands. Uh, the Rohirrim cleared them out and pushed them back over the mountains uh, into Dunland and the Enid Waith. Uh, and uh, it 
triggers uh, hundreds of years of uh, basically border wars, border fighting uh, between the Rohirrim and the Dunlendings. Uh, and the Dunlendings are sort of treated as like this like second class shadow class uh, in, in the sort of border regions. And Saruman uh, quite adeptly <laughs> uses that against the Rohirrim. Uh, and for some reason in the films, they're like, what if we made them Scottish? Uh, and that's fair enough. Uh, why not? That's good banter, I think. But yes, that is... Uh, the history of the Dunlendings and me absolutely destroying this being a shorter episode. <laughs> the Dunlendings are depicted as darker, hairier, dirtier than other folks. They wear old leathers and fours, sport big beards. So essentially, they're the hipsters of Middle Earth. <laughs> My A Song of Ice and Fire tangent today is that there are similar groups that exist in Westeros. There are several, actually, but two specifically I want to highlight. Why did I say it like that? I have no idea. <laughs> For those that watched Game of Thrones, you perhaps remember Tyrion's first trial by combat up in the Yeri, in which his new friend Bronn beats Sir Vardis Egan. Anyway, after victory, the Lady Liza Aaron releases Tyrion, but he has to venture on foot down from the mountains back to the Riverlands. There he is confronted by the Hill Tribesmen of the Vale, pictured very much as Tolkien's Dunlanders are described. In liaising with their leader, Shaga, he is able to form an alliance in which the hillsmen will escort Tyrion and Bronn out of the mountains and also join Lannister forces against the Starks. The backstory of these hills people is pretty much exactly the same as the Dunlendings. They predominantly occupied the Vale of Arryn, but when the Andals came with their steel and swords, they were forced into the less habitable parts of the mountains as the lords built their castles. And ever since, there would be animosity and skirmishes between the two. For just a bit of book flavor, there is also the mountain clansmen of the north who live in the mountains north of the Wolfswood and Winterfell. These men were not driven out, though. They chose the mountains and still paid homage to the Starks of Winterfell. And Ned, being the absolute best, would often visit and treat with them to maintain relations. These clansmen end up falling on the good guy side of things, as much as that sort of thing is clear in A Song of Ice and Fire. They help Bran Stark get to the Wall, and later will aid Stannis' campaign to liberate the North from the Boltons. Which aside, Stannis is far more compelling and righteous in the books, especially A Dance with Dragons, and if I had to point out the biggest whiff of Game of Thrones, it's how they butchered him literally and figuratively at the end of Season 5 so they could set up Jon Snow versus Ramsay Bolton, aka a storyline with two hot, young, sexy lead actors, <laughs> and not what George R.R. R. Martin was actually building towards. Okay, but that aside, I think the inclusion of the Dunlendings here is relevant to bigger themes or is a dry run of sorts for stuff we'll see later in the series. We see the world moving to war. It's not just a war between Sauron and Gondor, but we see the Dunlanders and Ents and Elves and Rohan and Wizards and Elves and Dwarves being brought into this conflict. But it is also specifically prepping us for the fact that there will be humans or men on the quote-unquote bad side of things in League with Sauron. The Easterlings and Herodrim will be introduced in a few scenes from now. And we also get a glimpse of Rohan and the Westfold. The Dunlander rallying speech then cuts to villages of Rohan on the Westfold, and we have some tertiary characters introduced, the mother Morwen and her two kids Freyda and Eothane. Morwen is sending them to Edoras to raise the alarm, which they do, as Gandalf finds them right after Theoden's heartbreaking moment at Theoden. Theodred's grave. The name Eothin is probably a reference to Eomer's cousin, who is among Eomer's Eored when they meet Aragorn, Gimli, and Legolas in the books, a scene we will talk about in a near future episode. 
Oh, I feel like I should also uh, say here, uh, the AO prefix uh, means horse uh, in Anglo-Saxon. So Aothane is like horse prince. Uh, Aowen is uh, horse joy. Aomer, fuck. Uh, I think it's like horse king or something like that. So when you get like Aerolingus, that's that's it's all related to the word horse. Uh, anyways, Morwen uh, as well, the name is probably a reference to, because it's not a Rohirrim name uh, by nature. It's certainly not an Anglo-Saxon name. Uh, it's probably a reference to Theoden's mother in the books, uh, Morwen of Lossernach. And the little girl complaining about the horse as her mom tries to put her on it, that's just true horse girl mentality, and I really (laughs) like that they work that in. (laughs) These three will serve as a visual marker through the rest of the film, standing in as the face of the quote-unquote common Rohan folk. We will see mother and children reunited upon arrival at Helm's Deep. I think it probably comes as a no surprise to everybody that I hate this bit. I hate this inclusion. Um, it's dumb. Uh, I, I feel like I fundamentally trust movie-going audiences to see houses being burned, women and children screaming, and be like, mm, this is actually probably not a good thing that's happening, um, and not need a bunch of screaming and crying children to like really hammer home the point that invasions and uh, pillaging of villages is like not a good thing, not a thing to be cheering on. Um, I also hate it uh, because it gets used so so this these films we're gonna we're just gonna have to deal with this in the two towers where it's just gonna be unavoidable these films have a really weird and fucked up relationship to like womanhood and femininity uh just on like every imaginable way like every time it seems like they're kind of getting led down the garden path of or not led down the garden path led down the path of like a relatively decent take on womanhood <laughs> uh they immediately turn around and just do something absolutely batshit to undermine that um so these kids end up getting used as like basically babies in arms to soften up aon's character um and i would like to point out that for all that Tolkien is a right-wing Catholic man, um, he never needed to put babies in women's arms to soften them up. Like, Eowyn doesn't hold fucking babies and kiss their foreheads and act like a mother uh, to them at all through uh, the books. And we know that she is still, like, a sympathetic character. We still know that, like, the fact that she is a woman is integral to to what her character is. Um, and I just really hate that they bring these kids in to basically be like, oh, well, you know, she holds a sword, but she also still likes kids, so don't worry. She's not a totally unhinged, like, like bra burning feminist kind of woman she's still on side anyways uh brief tangent but i just i hate i hate i hate these kids why are they here <laughs> uh this is just a taste of what you'll be in for for the rest of our two hours ooh, coverage. Ooh, boy um I, i'm actually just fairly agnostic on that i don't have like oh it's good or it's bad although emily's argument has now convinced me it's bad um <laughs> i don't think i just looked it through that kind of lens uh back in 2002 uh i to me, this just reeked of this is cinematic language. Like often when you have a city or a group of people, you usually just identify, you want to put some faces to that specifically, even if you're not going to engage with them. And so that's why it's just like, yeah, this is what they do. Um, we talked in our fellowship wrap up about fellowship, having a confidence that two towers and return of the King didn't. Uh, one thing I've been thinking about specifically is what if they weren't all made together and they saw that Fellowship was a hit, everyone was on board, would they still make these kind of decisions that were kind of very audience handholdy? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, if they had seen that, like, okay, we don't have to worry about this, you know, being a going concern. We don't have to worry about people checking out. Uh, people seem to accept Fellowship, you know, on its face. So we can just continue, you know, going deeper as opposed to some of this handholdy stuff, that, which I admit is, it's not made for people like us. It's made for people who might have simpler 
Uh, I, I don't want to insult anyone here, but uh, <laughs> you, you know what I mean. It's it's made just for the general movie-going audience so that they can put a face to a people who are not going to be explored very in-depth. But I do want to mention The Batman 2022 with Robert Pattinson actually has one of the best uses of like the random kid face in the crowd um, in that they do have kind of a runner with the same kid you see over and over, but they actually use it very deftly uh, to both invoke Bruce Wayne's origin um, to set up sympathy with uh, the family that this kid is part of and is also a very key moment in the climax of that film. That's like one of the best examples I've seen of this sort of tertiary character actually having relevance in a way that didn't feel like we're just trying to make things as simplistic as possible for like the baby brains in the audience. Um, I actually am going to counter that with uh, the by far and away the best use of kids in a film, uh, which is one of the Wonder Woman movies, the Gal Gadot Wonder Woman movies, features her saving like two little like Arab kids in the desert by like picking them up and moving them away from from danger and then immediately yeeting them right back into danger. And it's the it's so heinously funny. And I don't think they like. I don't uh, Patty Jenkins or whatever. I don't think she was like smart enough to realize the like horrifying political implications of what she was doing in that moment, but is absolutely deathly funny to see this like classic trope of like these kids being saved only for Wonder Woman to just immediately fucking throw them at a tank. 10 out of 10 movie making. I wish every movie had a scene like that. Okay. Uh, of course, uh, I think I should mention uh, Steven Spielberg had a very striking take on this trope in the Sh- in Schindler's List, you know, a movie we all sit down and watch every month because it's such a feel good story. <laughs> but um, he colored uh, one of the children in the crowds with the red. Um, so um, th- there are ways to do this. Again, I'm with you. I think this is very much this is something that's not <laughs> this is made for like the dumb blockbuster movie going audience more than anything. And its implications are not great in the first place. The Westfold itself is, shockingly, the western arm of the Kingdom of (laughs) Rohan, stretching east to the Gap of Rohan, uh, the gap between the Misty Mountains and White Mountains. The Westfold does include Helm's Deep, which is where these people would flee from the orcs and the Dunlanders. Right. Nobody in this film has the courage to say it. So it does it does technically go to Helm's Deep, but it goes, most importantly, to the river called Helm's Dyke. And I need people to get like 90% more confident saying Helm's Dyke because it's so funny watching people, especially in the behind the scenes of this film, uh, like twist themselves into knots trying not to say Helm's Dyke. Everybody, Helm's Dyke. <laughs> oh, man, I, I will start adopting that. Uh, well, uh, one thing, this is kind of like part and parcel with what I was talking about with the films never telling us Aragorn is elfish. Um, so I had to put my own readings. When Theoden later speaks about the burning of the Westfold, it almost sounded like more poetic Legolas style speech to me and not like a concrete, like where was, you know, Gondor when the Westfold fell? Like it it could have meant all of Rohan. It could have meant, you know, part of Ro- Like I wasn't really sure what they meant, but it sounded so badass that uh, we, in fact, will name an episode coming up, The Burning of the Westfold. Uh, so, you know, funny, funny how things work like that. <laughs> Pivoting over to our film craft portion, the landscape shots are back. And I don't want to belabor this, but yeah, the fucking landscapes, man. <sighs> they are back. And I feel like Jackson and company knew that we wanted to get these early and often. Nothing quite as majestic as we got in Fellowship of the Ring, but this is just such a smart way to reintroduce these characters and their quest to save Merry and Pippin. I've said this so many times, it's 
probably kind of annoying now, but go watch Michael Mann's The Last of the Mohicans starring Daniel Day-Lewis. Trust me, it's not as problematic as it sounds with that title and a white man lead. But Daniel Day-Lewis's character, Natty Bumpo, which is a (laughs) hobbit-ass name if I've ever heard one, and the father-son combo of Chigachuk and Uncas are the heroes of the story, and them running and ducking and fighting through the woods feels like a major influence on how all these scenes are all these scenes are shot. <laughs> and also, as mentioned, the Fellowship leitmotif is reintroduced here and now becomes firmly aso- associated with our three hunters. While Aragorn does have some of his own leitmotifs, which are not as pronounced as others, it's it's this one I think most associated with him. They carry on the spirit and purpose of the Fellowship as, as it is in this plot thread that the various forces of Middle-earth will unite in defiance of Sauron. The other needle drop of the Fellowship leitmotif I remember in the latter two movies is when Aragorn gets off that boat uh, to arrive at the Pelennor Fields, and we hear the Fellowship theme as the ghosts arrive behind him. And then, and then, for the first time, we hear the theme of Rohan, one of the most memorable leitmotifs from all these films, which is no small feat. Do you want a wolf how heal or not? <laughs> oh my god. Uh, The Rohan music borrows heavily from Nordic music, with strong structural formation and repetition of melodic notes. The goal was to make the music of Rohan the most quote-unquote human, and having little overlap with the instruments and movements going into various Elvish and Numenorean themes. Some key instrumentation include the double fiddle, which has eight strings to the usual four, which gives each string a resonating neighbor, effortlessly adding harmony and robustness to the music which reminds me of a 12-string guitar or perhaps a mandolin. The fiddle is considered a very yeoman, folksy instrument, which is the vibe I think they were going for. A lot of the Rohan music we hear here in the Two Towers is string-based, but we will get more brass and horns in the arrangements as we move into Return of the King, making the Rohan music more quote-unquote Gondor-esque as the kingdoms unite to fight Sauron. A variation of the Rohan leitmotif would be applied to the Riders of Rohan, which combines lower scales and registers, introduces a bassoon, and builds towards roaring climaxes so that it creates a sensation of a wave overflowing the land. In that, it's appropriate for the Rohirrim as they wash over the Uruks at Helm's Deep and the Orcs at Pelennor Fields, a giant wave of horses that washes the battlefield clean, which makes it thematically akin to the flooding of Isengard in this film as well. I want to read this quick passage that Aragorn recites once he sees the White Mountains off in the distance, once the Fellowship get a good vantage point of the gap of, or the fields of Rohan. Sorry. Gondor, Gondor between the mountains and the sea. West wind blew there, the light upon the silver tree. Fell like bright rain in gardens of the kings of old. O proud walls, white towers, O winged crown and throne of gold. O Gondor, Gondor. Shall man behold the silver tree or west wind blow again between the mountains and the sea? 
Um, so if you read the books, uh, you have to, you are morally, morally obligated to keep a post-it note to keep track of how many times from either from the mountains to the sea or from the river to the sea is used because <laughs> you will get the like accidentally J.R. Tolkien is the biggest uh, pro-Palestine supporter <laughs> just for pumping those chants out constantly. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Uh, one thing I want to flag here is that how these, how this part of the story is kind of told in uh, the Two Towers, uh, Book Three, Volume Two. However, you know, people talk about it. I don't read. Uh, <laughs> it almost feels like a dry run for what's happening in the bigger story and the way that, uh, like, the Aragorn side is separated from the Frodo and Sam side. In the book, The Two Towers, we get two chapters of Aragorn and Legolas and Gimli and their pursuit of Merry and Pippin and the Urukai, but we don't really know what's happening to them besides some clues and hints that are left behind. But then, you know, we get a couple chapters with Merry and Pippin all the way up through and including all the Treebeard stuff. And the fact that we kind of have this, we see what the men are doing or the men and the elves and the dwarves um, on one side, and then we finally circle back to what actually happened with the hobbits. It feels like what happens with these last two books overall, where we get all of the Aragorn and the war side of the storyline first, and then finally we get what happens with Frodo and Sam and Gollum in the end. It would be, I think, foolish to try to talk about Rohan without first talking about the work that underpins everything Rohan related. That is, of course, Beowulf. So, J.R.R. Tolkien was a philologist whose specialty was Old Norse and Germanic languages, including Old and Middle English. In 1914, inspired by the uh, work of Anglo-Saxon poet Kina Wolf, Tolkien penned a short verse referring to the star Arendel, which later became the first textual entry into Legendarium. As a sidebar here, uh, we just got our first ever picture of Arendel, um, and it's the oldest uh, star we've ever got a photograph of. Uh, so that's that was really exciting. That was a really a really fun day online. Anyways, I digress. Um, but so it was kind of wolf that triggered the Legendarium, but it was actually Beowulf that became the single greatest influence on Tolkien's Middle Earth writings. Beowulf, I know, has a bit of a reputation. Unlike the Odyssey, which has been translated and modernized a thousand and one times, Beowulf seems to be this great and accessible relic of history. I'm not going to sit here and tell you that every translation you're going to come across is a great one, but I am going to say this. Beowulf is really not as unparsable as it may seem. In fact, there are many genuinely fun and delightful translations, including one by the professor himself. I'm actually not going to recommend his, at least not for your first read, but rather the 1999 translation by Irish poet Seamus Heaney, occasionally named Heaney Wolf. All things considered, it's a fairly short read and you can probably get through it in under three hours. But for those who don't want to sit down and read it and don't want to totally lose track of everything I'm going to be saying in the next 20 or so episodes, here's the Sparknotes summary. Set in 6th century Scandinavia, the epic poem Beowulf concerns, primarily, Beowulf, a hero of the Geats, better known as the Goths, and his adventures in Denmark and Sweden. The action starts with Beowulf coming to the aid of King Hrothgar, king of the Danes, whose mead hall is under constant attack from the monster known as Grendel. Beowulf slays Grendel, then later Grendel's mother, is hailed as the victorious champion of the Danes and returns to his native Gateland, or Sweden, where he becomes king to his people. Fifty years later, Beowulf fights and defeats a dragon, but is mortally wounded in combat. After his death, his people honor him with a cairn. 
The similarities between Beowulf and the various plots of The Lord of the Rings, and even the Silmarillion, are numerous and obvious, and I don't want to patronize you all by pointing them out. Instead, there are a couple key points I want to raise. The first relates to an essay Tolkien wrote on Beowulf, or on the issues created in attempting to translate Beowulf, appropriately called On Translating Beowulf. In the essay, Tolkien notes that much of the language used in Beowulf would have already sounded archaic to its contemporary audience, which is to say, it sounded old as hell even when it was first written. Tolkien, then, rightly points out that maintaining that sense of temporal distance while trying to modernize the work is a very, very complex task. It actually represents some important insight into one of Tolkien's struggles with his own writing, which is how to evoke that sense of ancient magic without sacrificing accessibility for modern audiences. And Tolkien wasn't concerned with accessibility in the generic loose sense that it tends to be used now, meaning everybody can basically understand the definitions of the words that are written on the pages. He was instead deeply concerned with audiences being able to understand the meaning and artistry of the words. So that's the language element of Beowulf introduced. But there are lots of other important things we should note. Beowulf, for example, deals with the interesting and occasionally tendentious matter of relationships between sovereign kingdoms. The Geats and the Danes are two decidedly separate kingdoms and cultures, but it is Beowulf the Geat who ultimately saves the Danes. This, of course, has a direct parallel of Aragorn's relationship not just to Rohan, but also to Gondor. Then, of course, there's the matter of time and history. In the books, the Rohirrim are not just a distinct country to Gondor, they are a full-blown blast from the past. Their, their language is an antecedent to the common tongue, their governmental organization is closer to the early days of Numenor, and several characters from Gondor remark that the Rohirrim remind them of the early days of mankind. And in this, there's some interesting relevance to the political critique Tolkien sets out as part of the Rohan plot. The Rohirrim, like the Danes, are a war-loving people. They esteem the arts of war above all else, and do not herald art and other cultural exploits half so much as they herald war. When war and warrior-like behavior fails, as it does with Hrothgar and Theoden in turn, they are left with nothing, save a suffocating sense of cultural defeat. This, of course, is the state we find Rohan in when the Three Hunters arrive at Edoras, but more on that later. The key point I want you to take away from all of this is that, number one, Beowulf is not as scary as it probably seemed in high school. Definitely read it. It's free on Kindle for some translations. Two, there's a huge amount of analysis in both Beowulf and Lord of the Rings that go hand in hand. There's the linguistic element, there's the political element, and then of course, there's the historical element. And the third thing is that the Rohirrim are an absolute fucking mess, and this is going to be such a fun movie. No wonder Emily likes Rohan so much. They're a fucking mess. <laughs> no, that's great. I I read a version of Beowulf or like some of the stories about Beowulf about 15 years ago, but I literally cannot tell you who did the translation or if it was some kind of, you know, like Beowulf for dummies, like just kind of condensed down into a more palatable reading of the original. Um, so I like know the like basically Beowulf and Grendel and Grendel's mother kind of stuff, but like the broader and political themes that you talk about here are something that 
either I wasn't paying attention or just wasn't part of whatever version that I read. So, and I, I'm pretty sure I read a very small, thin copy. So it was probably the Cliff Notes version of it. But oh not no, the no, it's definitely notes. like the the actual like paperback version of Beowulf is tiny. It's pamphlet sized. Um, I think it's oh, only okay. like a hundred pages. It is a tiny little thing. Okay, well then we can just blame my brain cells for barely remembering. <laughs> oh wait, no, no, sorry, I'm not taking that excuse away from you. Spark yeah, yeah. Spark oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, um, but I, I have read it. But clearly, I I have to up my Beowulf game if I'm gonna <laughs> stay up with Emily. So, and that closes the book on this episode of My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. Our email is my brother, my captain, my podcast at gmail.com and my bro, my cat, my pod on Twitter. You can support this podcast by subscribing to my Patreon, patreon.com slash bomb, which goes towards this and all the other projects I've been working on. Which bomb? Hey, that's me. I've been Manu. You can find me covering Metal Gear Solid over at Podcast Sounds Frontiers. And I've been Emily, and you can find me on Twitter at JRTweeting, where I will be tweeting out songs worthy of a king's meat hall. <laughs> Toasting a pint to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, a.k.a. DJ Empirical. Please like and review our podcast wherever you may be listening. So until next time, remember, I would have followed you, my brother, my captain, my king.